All right. Could you please turn with me or uh, scroll with me if you've got a, a, a smartphone uh, to Psalm 110. Psalm 110. Uh, we come today to the end of our third year doing the uh, Summer in the Psalm series, and uh, this is a magnificent text uh, this morning. Psalm 110 is the Psalm or Old Testament text that is most quoted or alluded to in the New Testament. It is quoted or alluded to 12 times in the book of Hebrews. And for that reason, this psalm actually serves as an introduction uh, to uh, next week. Uh, It's an introduction and a refresher to our series that we begin next week. uh, We begin Hebrews chapter 7 as part of our series called Jesus is Better. We preached through uh, Hebrews for much of last year, not all of it. Um, next week we're back in Hebrews uh, chapter 7, um, where the name Melchizedek shows up, and um, we're going to get there, and it's going to be great. Uh, so if you're a, you're a student with us, uh, kind of coming back, uh, this is a great kind of catch-up on really what the first six chapters of Hebrews are about. One thing that I am very keenly aware of as we come to this psalm and also to uh, to the book of Hebrews is that there is a large bridge to cross between our world and the world of this psalm. We read in Psalm 110 about kings, priests, warriors, judges. We read about this order of Melchizedek. Uh, If you weren't aware, and I said the order of Melchizedek to you, you know, where do you find it? What is it? Where do you buy one? Um, I think most of us would, you know, be kind of lost, you know. So uh, you you can't find one of these in Palmerston North. Uh, right now. So there's a bridge that we've got to walk across to get there. None of these roles have an exact representation in our culture today. The, The king of Psalm 110 is not like the king or queen of England. It's just not a parallel. The priest mentioned here is not like a Catholic priest. And so we must seek to understand as we come to Psalm 110 that Psalm 110 is a prophecy about who Jesus Christ is right now and what he will also do into the future. We must reckon with Jesus Christ, with him as he is, and partly because his role is good news to people who need a Savior. This is great news if you are a believer in Christ. So to summarize Psalm 110, King David foresees a future king who will represent his people before God as priest, who will conquer his enemies as a warrior, and judge the world with righteousness. That is what Psalm 110 is about.
Let's read it uh, together. Psalm 110, a psalm of David. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments from the womb of the morning. The dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord is sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. This is the word of God. So if you've never read that before, some of that psalm might be a little bit of a shock to you. It's a hard-hitting package of truth. We're told who the author is, and right there in the heading, as being of David, which is King David, who was the second king of Israel after Saul. David wrote the psalm somewhere around 1000 B.C., 1040 B.C., from Jerusalem. And to give a very quick layout, The psalm is speaking about, I believe, one man who will be a king in verses 1 to 3, a priest in verse 4, and then a a warrior judge uh, is probably the best way to put it in verses 5 to 7. A king, a priest, and a warrior judge. And within Judaism, we've obviously got a thousand years before Christ comes uh, to to Bethlehem, you've now got two main schools of thought uh, within the Jewish community as to who the psalm is talking about. Some people are absolutely convinced, and still are convinced, that this is speaking about King David, that David is writing a psalm about himself. Some view it as a sort of enthronement psalm that you would read when a new king was put on the throne in Israel, kind of like Psalm 2. And so therefore the psalm would be speaking about David as as Israel's king and possibly even about David's sons like Solomon uh, and so on. How you understand the first verse of Psalm 110 is quite crucial to work out who is being spoken of, right? I know you didn't come for an English lesson on uh, Sunday morning, but it's perhaps you've read this text and you've read that verse because it shows up all over the New Testament and you've been confused. The Lord says to my Lord, what on earth does that mean? Some of your Bibles will have capitals for the first Lord. And that is, so it says, the Lord, and the whole Lord will be in capitals. And so that is a nice, easy way of seeing the Hebrew word Yahweh, Israel's covenant God. And then you'll notice that the second Lord is not capitalized. So there's different words being used here. The Lord said to my Lord. Some people want to say 
that someone within David's court wrote Psalm 110. So it says, the Lord said to my Lord, in this case would refer to Yahweh God, refers to, says to my Lord, me or my being the person who's writing it, just someone who's literate in David's kingdom, who's transcribing uh, the psalm, says to my Lord, and my Lord is David. Yahweh says to my Lord, King David. Some want to say that is what the psalm is about. And they'll say that David was a warrior and David was a judge. And so this is a psalm speaking about the special place of Israel's king under David. There are numerous problems with that view. But one simply is that it does not fit verse 4. It does not fit David. Verse 4 speaks about a priest of the order of Melchizedek. David was never referred to as a priest in Israel. David was especially not called a priest of the order of Melchizedek. It does not fit him. It does not fit his life. And uh, we will get to that part soon and also mostly next week in Hebrews chapter 7. But others within the Jewish community and the the Christian community as a whole, have understood this text as a prophecy. It's a prophecy about Israel's Messiah King to come a thousand or so years later. In 2 Samuel 7, David was told that from his house, meaning his line, God would bring forth a son who would rule forever as king. David, nor his first heir, Solomon, Neither of them were that king who would rule forever. Psalm 110 cannot be referring to David. It does not fit. And it cannot refer to any of the initial kings that came after David. It must be a future prophecy, and it must be speaking about Christ. Let's look at the first uh, three verses. We'll spend a bit more time on those ones. All right? Look at verse 1. The Lord said to my Lord. Yahweh said to Adonai. Adonai meaning supreme Lord, supreme ruler. God said to the supreme ruler. That is a, a strange thing to our ears to hear. The God of Israel says to the author's Lord. My Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let's think about what that means. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. To sit at the right hand of Yahweh, the God of the universe, the God of Israel, means to share in God's rule. It means to have a a kingly place. It means to sit on God's throne. To share in his divine majesty. It's the language of a king. Interestingly, David and his son Solomon understood this idea of ruling from God's throne very, very well. Listen to First uh, Chronicles 29. Now, I always bring up First and Second Chronicles, and I quote them. And as I say, if you're doing a 
read the Bible in a year plan, you you kind of you're falling off the wagon by this point. But they're great. They're great. First Chronicles twenty nine twenty two. Listen carefully to this. They made Solomon the son of David king a second time. They anointed him as ruler for the Lord, and Zadok as priest. Zadok the Levite. Then it says, Then Solomon sat on the throne of the Lord, Yahweh. This text here in First Chronicles 29 helps us to see that Israel's king was not like any other king that ruled anywhere on the earth. Israel's king did not sit at the Lord's right hand. However, he sat on a throne that was in some sense a copy of the heavenly reality. They were monarchs who ruled in Israel as God's king, sitting upon God's throne, ruling over God's people in God's land, which all makes up God's kingdom. The kingdom of Israel was the kingdom of God. And so it's God's throne. It's right there very clearly in Scripture multiple times. David and Solomon understood that to be king of Israel was ultimately greater than just them. It was a role that looked outside of themselves. It was a role that would look forward. Second Samuel 7 tells us, their throne was to be a picture of the Messiah's future cosmic rule. A king of Israel who would rule over everything. They understood this. So who is the author of Psalm 110? It's David. Who is the psalmist Lord? Who is Yahweh speaking to? Who is the Hebrew Adonai? Thankfully, the New Testament removes absolutely all doubt about who is being spoken to here. Verse 1 is quoted or alluded to five times in the book of Hebrews. Twice in chapter 1, and then in chapters 8, chapters 10, and chapters 12 of Hebrews. But to remove any doubt in your mind, and you might want to turn there if you you can, in Matthew 22, also in Mark's Gospel, in Matthew 22, we have Jesus' own interpretation of Psalm 110. Verse 1. And that is great. Matthew 22, verse 41. The Pharisees are playing gotcha with Jesus, as they like to do. They're trying to trip him up. Jesus throws Psalm 110 at them. Verse 41 of Matthew chapter 22. Now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, The son of David. He said to them, How is it then that David, in the Spirit, calls him Lord, saying, 
the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor did that day anyone dare to ask him any more questions. Jesus is saying something very simple. Kings do not call their son Lord. It just it just doesn't work like that, you know. Like I mean, people today might worship their children in some form, but um, that that's not biblical. Um, but you know what I'm saying? A father doesn't say to the son that he has created, "You're my lord." Doesn't happen. But this is no ordinary son. Jesus is no ordinary man. In Matthew chapter 1, Jesus' genealogy is traced through his right to be king. It goes through David. Jesus is truly man of the tribe of Judah. And he is truly God. He is the Son of God. And I want to add, uncreated, eternal. Truly God, truly man, he lived a perfect righteous life. He died as a ransom for sinners. He humbled himself to the point of death, death on a cross, to make purification for sins because the wages of sin is death. And we're told he rose from the dead and he is now highly exalted as king. This son, Jesus Christ, shares the full divine majesty. Like Paul says in Colossians, he says, Through whom God created the world. Who created everything? Christ. When Psalm 110 as a prophecy in Hebrews 1 and Colossians 3 and all these places that speak of sitting at the right hand, when it speaks of sitting at the right hand, it is tying together Christ's death, His resurrection, His ascension to the right hand of the Father, and His exaltation and enthronement as King. William Lane says, This Phrase said at the right hand asserts the supreme exaltation of the Son without compromising the rank and rule of God the Father. One God, three persons, Jesus Christ shares the divine majesty. It goes on to say that the Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter rule in the midst of your enemies. That language in Psalm 110 actually comes out of Numbers chapter 24. Balaam, Balaam's oracle, was a prophecy about the Messiah king who would come out of Israel and rule over all the nations. We put these verses together and we see that from the right hand of the Father, the king rules presently. Jesus Christ rules presently for all who will live under his rule. And there is a present indictment on his enemies. Right? Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. He says he's ruling now after his ascension. 
and there is an indictment on anyone who refuses his rule. All enemies will be made his footstool. Do we understand that picture? Do we understand that? It's very, very clear. Sit now until your enemies are made your footstool. It sets up the fact that the kingdom of Jesus Christ is already present, not yet, because he's not fully defeated all of his enemies. His rule is not full and final over all the earth. The kingdom is here now in part. It will be here in its fullness when Christ returns. And Christ's enemies then are any enemies of the king. Anyone who rejects his rule is an enemy. On earth, the demonic powers, Satan, anyone who rejects him on this planet. Colossians 2.15 says that at the cross, Christ, God the Father disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him, him being Christ. That the death and resurrection of Christ was a victory already. For everyone's time is up. Anyone or anything which opposes his rule. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15:25, He must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Where's Paul getting that? Where's Paul getting that? He's applying Psalm 110 to Christ. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, which means that the one who died and rose again, the firstborn of all creation, rules and will finally defeat death. Because he lives, death shall be no more for all who trust in him. goes on to speak of this rule in verse 3 about people offering themselves freely on the day of your power and holy garments. We get here a picture that those who oppose Jesus Christ will be forcibly subjugated to his rule. Forcibly. I know that doesn't work very well in our egalitarian culture, but forcibly subjugated to his rule. That's what Paul's getting at in Philippians 2, where he says, At the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow, every tongue confess him king. Right? That's where where that's going. To the glory of God the Father. His enemies are forcibly subjected to his rule at his return. But he says here, his people willingly accept it. And so there's perhaps slightly strange language here about we see there in verse three, right? Hebrews is sometimes Hebrew is sometimes difficult to, to put into English, but it's like holy garments from the womb of the morning, all the dew of your youth will be yours. It's really simply saying those who have come to love Christ's rule are holy, they're set apart, they willfully come before him. It speaks of a desire to, to, to serve him. It speaks of a desire to, um, to, to, to worship him, to serve him. It's speaking of regeneration. 
There's an immense contrast that is set up here. There's a rebellion against God's rule and a rebellion that left an indelible mark on creation. All the sin has brought death, disease, and suffering. And then here we have a people that have come under his rule. They love him. They want to be with him. Greg Beale. Some wonderful thoughts on Psalm 110. He says, Christ is restarting history, which is a new creational age to be successfully consummated at his final coming. why it says in the New Testament, Behold, I am making all things new. That's what it's getting at. A new rule. A new creation. A people that are not rebels against God's rule, but instead willingly come under it and seek to live a flourishing life, really, under His rule. I'm going to move through, need to move through the next one uh, quickly, but we're going to spend a lot of time on Christ being priest uh, next week. In verse 4 it says, we have a king and then we have a priest. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You're a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Verse 4 is quoted or alluded to seven times in the book of Hebrews. Seven times in chapters 5, 6, and 7. Priests, very simply, represent people before God. They offer sacrifices and worship on behalf of a people. They come before God on behalf of a people and represent the people. Kings are not priests under the Old Covenant, under the Mosaic Law. That's not saying they could never be priests, okay? ever, but under that specific covenant, they could not be priests. In 1 Samuel 13, Saul disobeyed God, speaking through Samuel, and he offered a priestly sacrifice before war. Saul was king who tried to be a priest, and Samuel said to him, you have done a foolish thing, you have not kept the command of the Lord your God gave you. Kings are not priests. And so we get this shadowy figure called Melchizedek who shows up. And I'm just blown away by, 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 this, uh, by this little story. You know, Melchizedek shows up in Genesis 14, verses 17 to 20. Abraham has just gone to rescue his relative Lot. They form a little militia a band of guys with swords, and they go rescue Lot's little militia with another king. And after the battle, they've got the livestock and they've, you know, been protected Lot and his family. Melchizedek shows up. It says that he is, his name means King of Righteousness, Melchizedek. Melchizedek shows up. He is king of righteousness. He is king of a place called Salem. He is priest of Most High God. He has no mother. He has no father. He shows up. 
verses 17 to 20 of Genesis 14, and then he exits the story, and we don't hear about him ever again until the New Testament comes around, and then his name is quoted all over the show. King of Salem, priest of our most high God. Doesn't that Psalm 110 telling us something? The Messiah will be a king and a priest. Where have we heard that? Melchizedek. King and priest. Under the old covenant, priests were of the tribe of Levi. Kings were of the tribe of Judah. They were not the same people ever. Psalm 110 says, the Messiah will have both roles. He will be a king and he will be a priest. Now remember, this is a thousand years before Christ becomes incarnate, comes to earth in Bethlehem. thousand years before. Does David have a clue about what he's saying? Is David in some euphoric trance just writing this and not having a clue? And he's talking about the order of Melchizedek and he's just overwhelmed and he's writing this thing and then it becomes true? I agree with D.A. Carson on this and he says, I think David had a much greater appreciation of what he was writing than perhaps many of us would think. I think David is reading the Old Testament. Remember, as the king of Israel, he would have to have his own copy of the law, we're told in 1 Kings. He would have to have his own copy. So he would transcribe all the scriptures of the Old Testament. He would transcribe all of them that were available up in there. He'd have his book of the law, and he'd transcribe them. And he would have to read them every single day. And I think David is getting to Genesis 14, and he's thinking about. Melchizedek, and he's thinking about the Messiah. He's thinking about the son that will come from his line. And I genuinely think he's starting to put two or two together. He's reading the Bible in light of the fact that there'll be a seed of a woman who crushed the serpent's head, who'll be a son from his line, who will bless the whole world, who will be a king and a priest. the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies once a year. He would offer a sacrifice on the Day of Atonement. Jesus Christ, we're told in Hebrews 4.14, Since then we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Hebrews 9.24 says, Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven himself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Very briefly, the high priest would go into the holy, holy place in the tabernacle or the temple once a year, offer a sacrifice on behalf of the people of Israel. We're told that Jesus Christ, when he ascended to the right hand of the Father, went into the most holy place because it's a copy of the heavenly things. Came before God, sat down at his right hand as priest to represent his people. He took on our flesh so that he might represent us. 
Jesus Christ seated, seated at the right hand as king is also taken up his role as priest, having done in a greater way what the priests of Israel did. Not only that, he didn't offer a sacrifice of a lamb or a bull or a goat. He offered himself a perfect sacrifice. He is the priest who offers himself, sits down at the right hand, having completed his job, and he is priest and king. I struggle to preach this because it's so utterly amazing, and it is exactly what we need to save us in our state. Christ then sits at the right hand as king, representing as priest, a people he is washed pure with his blood. Lastly, in verses 5 to 7, corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. Having come once to save, he rose again and rules. We're told in Revelation 19 that he will come once again to execute justice and bring judgment Revelation 19 gives a picture of the Savior coming with a sword in his hand, with a robe dipped in blood. Fulfilling the rest of that prophecy from Numbers 24, that all those who oppose his rule are slaughtered as the king returns. Jesus was meek and mild and welcomed children. He was gentle. He was so kind to sinners. Luke 7, the woman of the city that came to him crying. He was the most gentle man who lived. You felt safe around him. And yet we see here as well, he came once to save and he comes to judge all those who oppose his rule. This picture of a warrior Jesus is just far greater than Braveheart or Gladiator or Outlaw King or any of those movies. All those who oppose his rule are slaughtered by this king. I didn't write it. I'm just saying what it says. We want a God who's just. We want a God who looks at abuse and sin, molestation, all those kind of things and says, No! Our problem is we don't see ourselves as being worthy of being judged. Jesus Christ gives himself for his people. He gives himself to wash them pure so that they will escape judgment. And then he takes his bride, having washed her with the water of the word. And he crushes those who will not receive his kingdom. That's who Christ is. That is the Christ we must reckon with. And verse 7 it then says, He will drink from the brook by the way, therefore he will lift up his head. That is a picture of satisfaction. Will Jesus Christ be upset having judged the nations? No. It will be a picture of satisfaction having completed his task. That is the Christ we must reckon with. I want to apply briefly in four ways. 
How do we apply Psalm 110? There are many ways. Firstly, we should know the certainty of judgment. Jesus is king and judge. God has appointed him to judge all people for all things that they have done. The Apostle Paul says in Acts 17.31, These times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed the day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and is that he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. I'm a Christian because Jesus Christ rose from the dead. I am a Christian because I know that that cannot, should, and should not be disproven. Because of that act, he is able to be Savior and Judge. We should join with the words of Psalm 2.12, which says this, Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. That Christ is the one who judges. You don't want to be on his bad side but who saves. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. A picture of coming under his shelter and protection. We must know the certainty of judgment. Secondly, we must make use of the king priest. It is for this reason the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 10, 19, since, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. Since we have a great high priest of the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Do you know that there is absolutely nothing you can do to clean yourself up to be able to come before God? But if Christ is king and priest, and you are his, you can come before God. You can pray. You can seek forgiveness for your sins. And you can realize that there is a God who is more willing to forgive you than you are even to come to him. Therefore, use your king priest. Pray to him. Talk to him. Worship him. Thank him. Thirdly, Understand the mission of the church. I remember grasping this for the first time a while back. What is the job of the church? Well, one of them is to enlarge the king's territory by proclaiming the good news of his reign. The gospel of Jesus Christ's life, death, and resurrection and ascension is a message about a king who conquers by giving himself in place of his enemies. Most kings conquer their enemies, and that is it, and they're left without hope. The gospel is a message of, I have given myself in your place, now come under my rule. A king who gives himself for his subjects. In proclaiming the gospel, we seek to enlarge the king's territory to all those who believe his message. And lastly, we should have hope as Christians. We should have hope. 
If we have a king, priest, who judges, who sits at the right hand of majesty on high, that is a picture of completion. That is a rock-solid guarantee that redemption for our sins and our rebellion against God is done. You can't earn it because he earned it and sat down. You can't be forgiven more than you already are because he's paid it all already. If Jesus Christ has made purification for sins in himself and then sat down as priest, there is no amount of self-righteous, self-cleansing, or self-justification that will ever be effective. Give up! He's already sitting down. And therefore, as a Christian, we come to the Lord's Supper now. I'll say this. If someone asks you, when were you saved? It is perfectly appropriate to say 2,000 years ago. Because he's already sitting down. You can't remove the king from heaven. You can't vote him out. You can't overthrow him. If he creates and upholds all things, nothing created can take his place. That is security. That is what Peter is getting at in First Peter chapter 1, where he's talking about an imperishable inheritance kept in heaven for you. Not a thing. It's a person. His name is Christ. What more can you possibly have? And that's why Psalm 110 is good news. Let's pray.